I'm Amber and welcome to the Lone Star Keto podcast. Today I have a special guest with us, Dr. Michael Pariser. He is a psychotherapist and an author and he deals with stress and all that good stuff dealing with that. So I asked him on here because I, I'm seeing so many people who are dealing with stress and it's affecting their health. So he is going to kind of help us out. So welcome Dr. Michael Pariser. Thank you, Amber, so much for having me. It's good to be here. Absolutely. Okay. So give us a little bit of background on you. I, I want to hear about how did you decide to become a psychotherapist? Well, I, I used to work in the movie business. I live out in Los Angeles and I used to work in the movie business. And um, in the mid nineties, the evil people of the nation of Canada, you know, or that monster up north, the government started offering these gigantic tax breaks to movie companies if they would shoot their movies in Canada rather than in Hollywood. And it was so attractive to the movie companies that they ran off to Vancouver and Toronto to shoot their movies with the one condition that they must hire only Canadian crews. And suddenly I couldn't get arrested in Hollywood and my entire career basically disappeared overnight. And I, I needed to do something and I didn't know what to do. And I tried playing professional poker and that didn't work. <laughs> and then I sat down and I thought, you know, I am stressed and talk about stress. Like I, I didn't know what I was doing. I was trying to write. My girlfriend said, you're going to write us into bankruptcy. And so there was more stress. And I thought, I sat down, I thought, all right, what am I going to do? And I narrowed it down. I could be a chef because I love to cook. I could be a winemaker because I love good wine. Or I could be a therapist because I like listening to people and helping people. And so to make a long story short, I didn't want to be a cook. It's too much hard work. And uh, being a winemaker meant I had to move somewhere else. And I had a girlfriend. And so, and I liked the idea of the intellectual part. And so I thought, okay, that's it. I'm a therapist. And I went back to wow. school and I became a therapist. Wow. That's a big difference from movie therapist. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it is. Um, and um, it isn't because the job I had in the movies was I was the production manager. So that's like middle management between the crazy director and the, the greedy studio and the neurotic uh, actors and the, the, you know, the salt of the earth grips, you know, and I had to speak all those languages. I had to listen to everybody and translate from director to makeup artist and from, you know, truck driver to assistant director. And so I wound up being able to, it was great training in listening, solving problems, communicating, and helping move things forward, which is what I also do as a therapist. Makes sense. I would have never connected the two, but that makes sense. All right. Well, let's can I add down. one more? Can I add oh, one more thing? Absolutely. In, in in fact, the thing that I'm about to do now, which has to do with um, kind of feeling your way through life, has to do with solving practical problems using emotional intelligence. 
So I got the practical problem solving from the movies and the emotional intelligence part from being a psychotherapist. And I'm now putting them together into a kind of approach to living that's a little different from the way a lot of people live their lives. That is very interesting. Hmm. Okay, so let's talk about stress. I am seeing this more and more in my coaching that people are dealing with stress and it's affecting their health. And it's a well-known fact, stress does affect your health, physically, mm -hmm. mentally, whatever, uh, all the aspects of health. And I want you to kind of go through some of the various stressful situations and, and tell us how you would kind of deal with these things. And I want to start first with something that is just up in our face and has been for the last year and a half, you know where I'm going with this, but our, our situation with the pandemic, the lockdowns, um, for me, I had issues with, with masks because I just find it incredibly disturbing when I can't see people's face. I love to read people. I like to see smiles and it really, really depresses me. And and I found that even though we weren't, quote, locked down for more than a couple of weeks, really, I didn't want to go out because mm -hmm. I didn't, it stressed me because it was uncomfortable. It was weird. It was not normal. It was not something I like seeing. It was like I was in a sci-fi movie. So it caused me stress and I wanted to stay home. So how can we deal with this? I mean, a lot of the lockdowns are being lifted, but there's still a lot in place and we still have the mask issue. And then there's stress over the, should you get the vaccine? Should you not? And not that I really want to talk about that, but I'm just talking about the overall um, stressful situation. Not, and also like things have shifted, like people are working from home. <laughs> Let me just give you my situation so you can got it, kind of get a, a, a story here. My mother lives with me. I keep my two-year-old granddaughter and my husband works from home. We have a 1400 square foot house and when my mom has one bedroom. I have my little office here that, and a storage room, if you will, it's a very small room. And then there's a bedroom. So my husband works in there. So we are all home at the same time. Mm. I'm not used to that. I mean, I'm getting used to it after a year and a half, but how do people deal with all of this? What are some coping mechanisms to kind of help? So it, because it does affect our health. All right. Well, that's a lot of stuff. Um, but let me start slow. I think that um, I can use some of what you're saying as uh, kind of specific instances of larger issues. Um, and then maybe we can circle back to the specifics themselves and I can try to explain how I might approach them. Okay, perfect. So the, the first thing that I would say is a lot of stress comes from being in situations that you cannot escape. And you cannot escape the pandemic. You right. cannot escape the lockdown. You cannot escape the, uh, the laws of the state or the town or the country. So if it says you have to wear a mask, then you have to wear a mask. If you can't go to the grocery store without a mask, then you must wear a mask. And um, there's simply no way around it, assuming you're not going to break the law. 
But this is actually a larger issue because there's lots you can't escape. Um, you can't escape living in a house with a bunch of other people. You can't escape your mother's personality or the or your husband's needs for space. You can't escape the the noise that a two-year-old makes. And everybody out there has their own things they cannot escape. And so what makes things you can't escape so stressful? And what it is is the emotions that get triggered. And in particular, negative emotions. So they trigger negative emotions and there's nothing you can do about them, okay? So let's take you and the masks. You're out in the world and you're in a sci-fi movie and everybody is a zombie with a mask on, right? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, and what are they looking for? Brains, right? They're looking <laughs> to eat your brain. And in point of fact, they are eating your brain because uh, the, the, the look of all these people is driving you kind of crazy. And you're going to have to ask, well, what are the feelings that you're having? You can, you can say, I'm stressed, but stress is not quite a feeling. It's a biophysical state involving hormone release and uh, some anxiety, which is. Um, but what are the feelings you're having? As you look, and I'm going to, I'm going to think about this, Amber. Ask yourself, when you see this, when you're in the sci-fi movie, what are you feeling? Are you, does it scare you? Does it? It's kind of, it's just funky. It's like weird. Yeah, right. It is weird. I agree with you. But what's the feeling you're having? What emotion does it trigger? And this is, so let me interrupt for just a second. It's, it is disturbed. You are disturbed. In what way are you disturbed? Are you scared? No, not scared. Just like it's not normal. Are you are you disgusted? Are you repulsed? Maybe disgusted a little. (laughs) If you want to get down to it, just saying. Well, but I do want to get down to it. There's a point that I'm making which is if you can identify the feeling and you can tolerate that feeling, then you will be a lot less stressed out because you can't change the situation. What you can do is tolerate the emotion that it triggers. Mm-hmm. I hadn't really looked at it that way. Yeah. Because we're never, it's never like the th- thing itself occasionally it's the thing itself if somebody's got a gun in your head okay it's the (laughs) thing that's the thing you you could die but let's talk about like the the guy who's afraid of elevators if you say to him why are you afraid of the elevator you work on the 73rd floor of the tower downtown. You, you know, you ha- you walk up 73 flights of stairs every day. And you it, don't get me wrong, you're probably in great shape from walking up 73. But what if you're late for a meeting, you know, and, and the boss is going to fire you if you don't get there on time? You have to take the elevator. And if you say to him, why are you scared of elevators? He'll talk about they 
fall or you get stuck. I don't want to be trapped. It claws to like, but what is he really afraid of? When he goes in the elevator, he has a spike of fear and he hates the fear. It's his own fear that he can't tolerate. And the way a therapist works with him is, is to go little by little closer to the elevator than pushing the button and into the elevator and each time hearing the fear and relaxing until he can get in the elevator and tolerate his fear and then he can use elevators. Hmm. You can go out in the world if you're not so creeped out because you can tolerate whatever the disgust, the repulsion, the fear, the weirdness, whatever it is, if you can tolerate it, you go, okay, I'm going to have to tolerate it until it goes away. And I'm okay with that. I find that really annoying that like my husband has that ability most of the time. I'm not saying he doesn't have his times, but he's like, well, I can't do anything about it. So why am I going to get, and I'm like, how can you just do that? You know, it's like I'm the one that's a little more high strung. He's the one that's just kind of chill back, you know, like, well, what are we going to do? And I'm like, what do you mean? So, so let me introduce an idea because I'm actually thinking about doing like a podcast or a, a newsletter myself, and it's going to be called Feeling and Dealing. And in most couples, one person is good at feeling and the other is good at dealing. And you're better at feeling Ooh. and better <laughs> at dealing. And so it makes Ooh. a nice couple, but it's hard to like get on the same page. And so there are ways in which he will function better, like in a situation you can't do anything about, where you're feeling and you can't, you, I won't go out, I won't go out. Whereas there are other times you'll do better because you can connect to the emotions of the situation and he will be like clueless. Hmm. Good point. Okay. So I want to talk about kind of a serious thing. And this is something that I've been hearing more about. I've had multiple guests on the podcast who have dealt with past trauma. And I'm talking some serious trauma, like a child abuse mm. and some really bad stuff. And one was actually uh, abduct abducted and kept for a while. We're talking mm. serious stuff. That is serious. Like, how do you even begin to deal with that? I mean, obviously you can't, you know, just give your whole thing or whatever, but what can a person do in that situation? Because you know, that's going to keep coming back up and up. And it, it's a fact the past trauma does in fact, you know, can make you physically ill later in life. Not, not just up here, but physically. Yes. Well, both certainly. Yeah. Um, well, when you say, what can you do, do you mean you as the individual who has been traumatized or yes. you as a therapist working with such an individual? The individual? Uh, well, well, yeah, something they, they can do on their own. I mean, obviously, it would be a good idea to get some help to, to help work through that. That's a given. But what are some things that they can do to start to cope with the stress of all of that? Because that comes back up. They, they, they may not even really realize what it's from, but that stress keeps popping up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so 
I want to see if I can broaden it, the question just a little bit. So people talk about trauma and they talk about like discrete or catastrophic trauma, like, like um, uh, you, you lived through a, an earthquake or you were abducted or, you know, there's, you know, specific instances of, of abuse or battery. Okay. Um, but then there's also what we might call like micro trauma or cumulative trauma where you just had, so you want to call it like crappy parenting disorder that we we have all we all suffer from and so um so the issue the the way you kind of do it is you don't you can't live in the past but you can't forget the past either so you have to look at the impact that it's having and if it's having such a tremendously disturbing impact on your life at present, you do need to get professional help. And what a professional will help you to do is kind of deal with the, again, it's the emotions. You're trapped in a situation, just like going out and there's all the, the monsters in the masks. You live in, you live in that world. You live in a world of monsters or you live in a world of, of searing pain. And when you fall into that black hole and you can't get out, all you're doing is re-traumatizing yourself. So it, it's making it worse. What a therapist will do is when you fall into that hole, they'll help you. And so the re-experiencing in a different context with a trusted other who's helping to reduce the stress is going to change the nature of the reliving. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So let's say I went to war and, you know, I have, you know, PTSD from fighting in, you know, in Afghanistan. Okay. And, um, I, and I'm like, I go to the therapist and when, you know, every time I hear a loud noise, I, I want to, Duck, you know, dive under the desk, but the therapist can help. And so little by little, the loud noises, I, I want to dive under the desk, but I don't dive under the desk. I can, I've, I've got it calm enough where I can remind myself it's a loud noise. It's not the Taliban fighting, firing at me. Um, it is little by little something that becomes an accepted part of me. You'll, you can't make the past go away. What you can do is learn to live with it in a different kind of a way. That makes sense. Uh, okay, and this is something that really- a confused expression on her face. <laughs> <laughs> no, that part was good. I, I I get really kind of um aggravated when I hear somebody say, just get over it. Me too. Because they don't 
think of whatever you consider to be a trauma to be a trauma. And I see this all the time. And I always point out, you know what, you may not even recognize it as a trauma, or you may reject it because you've been rejected about it before. And so it could be something that most people think is really minor, but it wasn't minor to you. So how do you deal with that when somebody says, get over it, or it's been a year since, you know, such and such died, I think it's time you need to move on. I mean, does anybody have the right to put a limit on that? No, of course not. That's the answer. No. (laughs) And and that's the same answer I give to people who say, get over it. I say, no. Um, I I actually say a little more. I say, you know what? Um, I I hear that you want me to get over it. And I think, you know, you're my friend and I know you love me. And I think you're want the best for me and you think it would be best if I could kind of, but right now I can't. If obviously if I could, I would. I'm not choosing to stay in it because it's so much fun. It's painful, but I can't get out of it right now. And so if that's hard for you to be with me when I'm in this state, that's okay. When I get out of it, I'll give you a call. Mm. In the meantime, I'm going to have to work through this at my own pace. Yeah. Right for me. I just don't think it's right for people to decide for you when it's been enough time to grieve or whatever it is to Mm. deal with the situation because they don't really understand the trauma that you felt. Mm-hmm. It may not seem like a big deal and it may not be a trauma to you, but you know, there's a lot of stuff going on right now and always has, but I mean, especially right now, there are people dealing with these things and a lot of my coaching is not about the diet. It's about things like that. It's the emotional, it's the mental aspect. And yeah. it seems to always go back to these little like micro trauma, some, some major, but, but more micro things that, that once they think about it, they're like, Oh, wow. My mom used to blah, blah, blah with me. And that's why I look at food this way or whatever. And, you know, that was a traumatic event for them. I remember being told, Oh, do you really need those seconds? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you really need that second helping of mashed potatoes? Well, I still remember that I'm 55. I was like, I don't know, 15, 16, when I remembered that happening and that stuck with me all this time. And it's not like it's ruled my life, but occasionally, you know, I have those kind of flashbacks and I'm like, Ooh, where did that come from? You know? Right. <laughs> so right. it's. Yeah, no, I, and my, the message I got was you will eat everything on your plate and you will not leave the table until Ooh, you. Yeah. That's our, our generation. I mean, that's what we were told. You don't really hear that so much today. And I did not do that with my kids, did not do that. And I don't do that with my grandbaby either. So it's just, I just don't think that's a good message to Mm -hmm. to force just for the fact. And I always love the part, you know, well, in other countries, kids are starving. My, my, my thought as a kid was, can we send it to them? Yeah, yeah. I have a box. I get a box. <laughs> and some like, I would love to share. <laughs> yeah, really? Absolutely. Okay. So, so some other so, things. So, so wait a minute. So, okay. and I, I just want to get in on what you said, because it's so okay. important. So when you're doing your coaching and there's like the emotional stuff, it seems like there's two parts to the emotional stuff. There's the emotional stressors 
of whatever their past or present is. You know, they're getting a divorce or they are, uh, they just got a promotion or they just got fired or they lost money or they won money, whatever it is. And um, there is also the emotions of food. So it's the intersection of life emotions and food emotions that trigger eating issues, whether the issues are binging and gaining weight or purging and, and being anorectic. And so um, uh, if you're thinking, you, everyone out there, if you're thinking about this, the, the, you, you can start to work on both. And in a funny sense, it's actually easier to work on some of the life emotions because um, they're, they're non-specific. And if you can tolerate the emotions, often you don't have to resort to food issues to solve life problems. Hmm. In other words, you don't have to eat to soothe yourself. You don't have to eat to feel better about yourself. You don't have to eat to get yourself out of a depression or to reduce your anxiety. If you can tolerate some of those other things, like I'm pissed off that guy did this. Okay, all right, yeah, that's right. And I have every right to be pissed off. And you know what? I'm not gonna shoot him, although he probably could use some shooting. Um, but I am, I'm gonna tolerate the anger and I'm gonna keep out of this guy's life. And I don't have to go and have a giant plate of barbecue to make myself feel better. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, do you ever deal with, with people who like want help with like cravings? Like they, they don't know. I mean, some of it is physiological, you know, the addiction, but how do you deal with those kind of people or have you ever Oh, well, yeah, people, but because this is a food podcast, I think you're talking specifically about food cravings, um, yes. but um, people crave all kinds of things. Um, they crave playing golf. They crave going to massage parlors. They crave, um, you know, whatever it is. And the what I do is, the way I think about it is this, the craving is a craving for, it's a search for a solution to a problem. The solution has its own problems. In other words, they crave alcohol. I got to get a drink, right? I got to get drunk or I got to get stoned, right? I'm craving cannabis, right? Why? And the answer is because there's something that triggered the craving. So I tend to work backwards. You're craving this thing. What happened? And when did it start to happen? When did the craving show up? Oh, it showed up a half an hour ago. What happened a half an hour ago? Oh, you got off the phone with your ex-husband. I see. <laughs> and now you're craving haagen -Dazs. Okay, so what did you feel when you were on the, oh, you felt hurt and angry and lonely and sad? Ah, okay. And now the thought of something sweet and creamy to replace the, the, the acid, the bile you feel as a result of talking to your ex-husband 
now starts to make sense. So now what do we do? You have to tolerate the feelings that you had in the phone call with your ex-husband, because if you can't tolerate them, all you can do is go for the craving. So you have to tolerate them and say, okay, that's part of talking to my ex-husband. And mm -hmm. now if I can tolerate them, I don't have to impulsively rush for the ice cream. Yes, I am aware I have a craving and I can tolerate that too, but now I'm calm enough where I could take a walk or I can call a friend or my, talk to my mother or my husband, my current, my boyfriend, or I can take the dogs for a walk. And, um, but the first step is tolerating feelings. Mm, tolerating. Hmm. That's a tough one. <laughs> I'm and not going to lie. The rest of your life. Feelings come and feelings go. So I'm going to tolerate the, frustra the frustration and disappointment I feel every time I talk to him because he has a new boyfriend. Ugh, and I'm, I don't have a new you know, husband, right? Or he has a new girlfriend. Maybe he, was, he came out and he's gay. I don't know. <laughs> That makes it easier. But maybe he has a new girlfriend. He has a second wife and he seems happy. And I don't have a new boyfriend and I'm lonely. Those are hard feelings to handle. And it's pretty easy to start craving, you know, ice cream or cookies or drink or smoke, you know, cannabis, whatever it is. I crave it, right? It, because of our. Tolerated until they go away. It could be a half an hour, it could be an hour, it could be a day, but eventually they're going to die down and get replaced by other emotions. Mm. So is this similar to like a physical addiction? Do you, I'm assuming it would be handled a little bit differently, but there's a difference between like you're angry or you're upset. So you're comforting yourself. That makes sense. But what if you're actually physically addicted, like you are with drugs, like you are with sugar, uh, you know, carbs. And I know people will argue with that, but sorry, you can be addicted to them. Sorry. <laughs> right. So the difference, the first one, these, these cravings for whether it's for eating or for, uh, you know, sex or for, you know, some activity or I got to do yoga. I got to do yoga right now. You know, whatever it is, those are, are what I call compulsions as opposed to addictions and addictions have, they have a lot in common. Um, the difference is that compulsions almost always are responses to specific events. Whereas addictions take on a life of their own because there's a chemical dependency involved. So the craving for alcohol or drugs might come from the your brain chemistry when it gets down, you know, the, the dopamine gets down to a certain point. It's saying, give me, give me opiates, you know, give me alcohol now. And that's, that craving in an addiction is triggered internally, whereas a craving for a, in a compulsion is generally coming from uh, your relationship to the world. You could be lonely, but that's because nobody's around. You could be hurt because somebody said something bad to you. You could be angry. 
because somebody cut you off or somebody did something you know mean to you and so that that'll trigger those cravings makes sense i i, I deal with that a lot <laughs> mm. it, it, it's like i said most of my coaching is really not about the diet no, a few questions, emotions. but yeah, so much. And being that I spent 40 years of my life dealing with multiple things and finally came out on the other side after 40 years, uh, you know, I am very At aware. All? Only 40. Just 40. No big deal. You really? know, that's, that's um, how the Israelites took to get to the promised land. So you must be one. Oh, well, there you go. Exactly. Uh, I, 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 feel I feel a bond. <laughs> yeah, but but it is difficult. Um, uh, the other thing too that I see a lot of is um, being overwhelmed, like not being able to say no, not setting limits, or if you do set limits, you feel guilty. How do you deal with that? How do you set limits where you don't feel like a butthead? You might not like this answer. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> the answer is you don't get a free pass. Nobody gets a free pass. If you want to set limits, at least in the beginning of your limit setting, if you're not a good limit setter, you will feel like a butthead. Why? <laughs> because you are saying no to somebody who wants you to say yes. So you may be disappointing or hurting another person. And if you're a good-hearted indivi human individual, you don't like to hurt other people, but you're going to. And there isn't any way around it. And you may feel guilty. You may feel ashamed. There isn't any way around it. The alternative is to never say no and just give everybody everything they want all the time without ever setting any limits. That doesn't work either. Yeah. Right. The first one works. You just have to get used to it. Over time, you'll feel less and less like a butthead. Over time, you'll feel less. You'll get to do it better. There are, there are better and worse ways to, to set limits. And when you set limits, you will feel better about yourself. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm in the process of learning. Okay. I'm getting a little better. I'm not great at it, but a little better. <laughs> I'm one of these people. Ah, sure, I got you. And then I'm like, oh, good God, what did I just do? What, what did right. I agree what to? What did I just say yes to? <laughs> and then the stress. <laughs> and then my husband's over there going. Why'd you do that? You know, you can't, you don't have time for that. And I'm like, really? If I knew you think I'd be doing it. <laughs> yeah, I think you, yeah, he's right. You, you did know, and yet you didn't, you didn't feel the emotions. If you, if you intellectually, if I asked you, or he asked you intellectually, do you have time to do this? You would go, of course not. No. Right. So you do know, mm -hmm. but it's not the intellectual awareness. It's the emotions that you miss. So let's go back to the idea of feeling your way through life and tolerating the feelings. Yes, let's do it. The first thing you got to do is tolerate. You have to feel the feelings. So 
let's I'm gonna let's do it really slowly. Amber, you know how I, I could really use some help. I I I my garage is such a mess. I've been storing stuff there for the last 30 years, and you're so good at organization. Can you come over this Sunday and help me clean out my garage? May take oh actually Sunday is Sunday. So now I gotta do my hair. I gotta do my hair. Right. <laughs> so the first thing is to feel the feelings. What did you feel? You know you don't have the time. So what did you feel? I would think in a situation like that, because it's going to take a lot of time, I would feel overwhelmed. Like <gasps> I would immediately just feel like a tightening in my chest going, oh, good God, how can I get out of this? Yikes. Right. right. And, um, but you might not be, if you can't think of anything, enough, you might agree. Help me. I'm a horrible liar. <laughs> right. So the very first thing that I recommend to people that they do in this situation is take time, buy yourself time. Here's, here's the most useful phrase. Hmm, let me think about that. I'll get back to you. I haven't said no, I don't feel guilty. I'm now gonna go talk to my husband and say, do I have time to wait? Okay. <laughs> no, stop. No, <laughs> in a word, no. <laughs> um, and, and, but you're also, now I'm going to also, if I'm Amber, try to sort out the feelings. So on the one hand, I am kind of terrified that I'm going to agree to something that I just don't have time to do. But I'm also terrified that I'm going to make an enemy out of my friend. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. Yeah. And so now that I understand that, and I'm also terrified that I'll get into a confrontation with my friend. I'm terrified I'll lose the friendship. I'm terrified that I won't be able to say it in a nice way. I, I've got a lot of fears. But once I've sorted them all out and I think about it, then I can make a decision. The answer is going to be no. Now, how do I say it in a way that... Right. Or there might be a compromise like, you know, something I, I can't, I, you know, I can give this person two hours on, a, on Saturday afternoon. I got and I'm willing to do that. So then there's a way to say it. And actually in my my book, which is for men and it has to do with a whole other issue. But there's a chapter on assertiveness. And this whole category is called assertiveness. Right setting boundaries, saying no, drawing the line, what are the, right? and there's a kind of a formula that you can use. And it's actually a pretty simple formula. Um, and if you kind of get it into your mind, um, the, you'll be able to use it. And so I, you want me to take you through it? Yeah, I okay. think it would be very beneficial. Okay, so, most people do it in three steps. I've expanded it to six just because there are some kind of very specific things that you can use. So step one is empathy. So I say to my friend, now I'm Amber and you're, you know, Fred who needs his garage cleaned out. I say, Fred, listen, I'm aware that you have a real problem with your garage. And I'm aware that you see me as the, 
the the master of organization and um and i appreciate you know the compliment that's the empathy part i haven't done anything yet except you know say what's in fred's mind right two but when you asked me to spend the entire weekend cleaning out your garage, that's the fact. Three, I felt terrified, that's the emotion. Four, because I believe that it's a project that will eat up such enormous amounts of time, I won't be able to do what I need to do. So five, I would like to beg off on this occasion. I, I'm aware that you want me to, but I'm afraid the answer is going to have to be no, because I have other things that I want to do. Yeah, that's very helpful, actually. Now there's a sixth step, and uh -oh. the sixth step uh -oh. is the killer. You ready for this one? Oh, I'm not sure. <laughs> the big step is called consequences. Because a boundary is not defined by words. If I say no and you do it anyway, then what? A boundary is defined by consequences. So you must have in the back of your head what's going to happen if your boundary is crossed. So, um, so I ask a girl out on a date and she says yes. And then, um, she cancels at the last minute. Assuming I really like her, I'll give her a second. She should, maybe she says, I'll give you a second, whatever. I'm going to say, okay, look, but you can't cancel at the last minute. If you do that again, I won't go out with you at all anymore. That's the consequence. Hmm. I like that. So the, like you it. may have somebody in your life and your listeners may have somebody in their lives who always wants, you know, I want another, I want another. I want, she's always doing this. So at a certain point, you have to say, if you do this again, here's what's going to happen. And this is the part B of the consequences. You must do it. If you if you say to the child, if you take one more scoop of ice cream before eating your spinach, you will never see ice cream again. <laughs> follow <laughs> through. Or you must follow through. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> that that's our, that's the very helpful, actually. Okay. You've kind of answered this, but I want to get a little deeper into it because like if you, let's say the situation and somebody calls you selfish because you're looking out for your own well-being and we're seeing a lot of that right now, if you know what I mean, how do you deal with people who just want to make you, you feel like you're this horrible, selfish person because you're trying to take care of yourself. And that goes also um, with diet. Like if you go to grandma's house and you're like, Ooh, I, I'm so sorry. I can't eat that cake. Uh, but 
I made it for you. It's kind of selfish for you to put your needs above all the work I did for you. Okay. So this is a great question. And there's two parts. There's they call me selfish. And the other is I feel like a horrible, selfish person. Okay. Those are actually separate. I'm at the point in my life, you can call me selfish if you want. It's okay. Because, why? Because I am selfish. That's why. And so are you. And so is everybody on the planet. The, the problem is not that we're, we, it's that we are being called selfish. The problem is we think we're not selfish. Of course we're selfish. And we are, and we, and when they say you're putting your needs in form, yes, that's right, I am. You're absolutely right. I am putting my needs in form. Because guess what? I'm, I, this is my life, and I'm living my life for me, not for you. The day I'm going to live my life for you, I'll call you up, I'll text you, okay? I'll, I'll let you know from now on I'm living my life for you. Until that point, I'm living my life for me and you're living your life for you. And that's the answer. And I and mm. so um and I feel that and now we go back to the setting limits. And I grandma, I love you. I know you love me and I know you made this cake just for me. And frankly, it, it looks delicious. But I'm not going to eat any because I'm on a diet right now. Well, you're always on a diet. Yes, that's right. And I, I'd like to stay on this one. And so uh, the answer is just going to have to be no. Well, you're so selfish. You know, you can think that. And in this particular case, I am putting my needs in front of your needs. And I, and I, and I sort of feel bad. But on the other hand, that's what I, I'm doing what I need to do for me. And by the way, Grandma, assuming I was feeling feisty that day, I appreciate the spirit of generosity. But you've and she you she says you're you you're always on a diet. You know I'm always on a diet. Why did you make a chocolate cake for me? Mm. What possessed you to do that? Hmm. That's you putting your needs in front of my needs, Grandma. Ooh, the tables have turned. <laughs> That's actually extremely empowering. Yeah, no kidding. It's almost like giving yourself permission. It's okay to have your needs and, and protect those needs. And we have this issue in, in the diet world because we don't fit in with mainstream uh, the beliefs their traditional guidelines which have not done well for the population but whatever that's beside the point but we get a lot of flack for that mm -hmm. and we're made to feel like you know you're you're some kind of weirdo that it's not okay for you to be different they can't make you feel the way you don't feel for yourself so when you say they make you feel like a weirdo, now they accuse you of being a weirdo and you're accepting the attribution. If you don't believe it and you don't accept it, then you just say, no, I'm not a weirdo. I'm me and this is the way I want to live my life. You can say anything you want about me. 
Now, having said that, there's another part to this, which is, well, I'm weird in your eyes. That's okay. I'm also, I've got, look, I'm a human being. You're a human being. All human beings are, guess what, human beings. And human beings have all kinds of stuff going on. And some of it's good. Some of it's not so good. We, I, we like, you seem like a lovely person, and I get that you want to be seen as good. I gave that up. It makes my life so much easier. Somebody says, you're an asshole. Yeah, you know, I probably did an asshole thing. My girlfriend gets angry at me, and she said, you did that. I said, yeah, I did that. that I did that. Well, that was a terrible thing. Well, yes, that's probably right. Well, why did you do that for? Well, I guess I kind of like was thinking this at the time, and it's probably not something I'm really proud of, tell the truth. But it's easier because now in my life, because I can say I'm, I'm selfish, but I'm also selfless and generous. I'm kind, but I'm cruel. I'm happy, but I'm sad. I'm elated, but I'm depressed. I'm also spiteful, hateful, angry. I'm also sweet and and loving and uh, and friendly. I'm everything. I'm every. There is nothing I am not, because I'm human, and nothing that is human escapes me. I am everything that is human. And so are you, and so is every other human being. So when they say you are this, yeah, well, that's probably true. I, I guess that's true. In this particular instance, I was that. I was spiteful and mean and petty, and I'm not proud of that, and I, I acted badly, and I apologize. Or, you know, I did this for me, and I know you don't like it, but I'm sorry. That's what I needed to do, and I'm not sorry I did it. <laughs> that is so empowering. I love that so much because it just kind of, I, I, I really can't wait till somebody says that to my face that I'm selfish. I'm just going to go. Yeah. Yeah. Right. In this particular. What are they going to do? <laughs> right. What are you going to do? Like call, call me selfish. Go ahead. Call me selfish. Uh, you're kind of selfish. <laughs> you know something? I agree with you. This is kind of fun. <laughs> yes, isn't it? When we stop trying to be angels and we don't go to, oh, now I'm a horrible devil who deserves to have his head cut off. And we go to being human, life gets a lot easier. Mm, I like it. I'm really good with that in, in, in the diet world because mm. I am so far beyond that. I do not care. I do not care. You can call me a murderer because all I eat is meat. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't care. Vegans attack me often. I don't care. It, it's like, I, I, I can't even deal with you because I no. <laughs> and I know I'm not a murderer, you know, those kind of things or, uh, well, you're supposed to eat vegetables. Mm, says who mm -hmm. says who show mm -hmm. me, you know, I, I don't care anymore. It doesn't bother me, but a lot of people in our community, it does. And I think a lot of it stems from, they don't have the confidence yet. Mm -hmm. And that they're a little bit unsure 
there, you know, because we've been so indoctrinated to believe a certain thing that it's really hard to come to terms with something that is completely the opposite of what you've been told your mm -hmm. whole entire life. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I get that. And I, I did, I struggled with that too in the beginning until I got my confidence. I, I, I did my research. I, I, you know, had my experiences and then I'm like, pfft. I don't even care anymore. Now I have to take that and move it into other aspects of my life. Yes, I was going to say that. If you could take that and move it into life in general, that's what I've done. And it just, could you call me anything, you know? And and it in, also enables us to be able to do something like own our badness, own that we stepped on somebody's toes. Um, and and actually then try to do something useful with it. Let, let me give you a little uh, a metaphor. And I know we're kind of getting in the time-ish, but um, imagine you and I are learning to dance, okay? And I stepped on your foot and you scream. Ah! And you say, you clumsy oaf, how could you do that, right? Okay. So first thing is I'm going to say, oh, gee, I'm really sorry I stepped on your foot. I, you know, I, I certainly didn't intend to do it. But let's take another step. I'm okay with it for a while. I'm actually okay with it. Why? How do we know that my foot was in the wrong place? Maybe your foot was in the wrong place. Maybe both of our feet were in the wrong place. We're learning to dance together, right? We're not sure who made what move and why it was wrong and when and why. So we have to go into it. And it's easier to go into it if I own the fact. I don't have to defend myself. I didn't not step on your toe. I stepped on your toe and it hurt. And and so I, own. yeah, okay. I could have made a mistake. Let's take a look at it. Same thing in life. Call me a murderer. Okay, because yeah, I eat animals. All right, all right. So um, in your eyes, I'm a murderer. That's okay. That's going to have to be okay. I stepped on your toes by, you know, eating, eating beef. All right. Okay, <laughs> okay fine. And you know what? I'll probably, I'm going to do it again. So maybe we're not good dance partners. That's a good, that, that, I like that. That's good. And, you know, it's really funny you use the, the, the dance metaphor because I actually, uh, my husband and I go dancing every single weekend. Mm -hmm. We, we took dance lessons when um, my kids kind of had left the house. So it was kind of the mm -hmm. emptiness syndrome thing. And we needed to find something to connect with and, you know, have fun or whatever. So we took dance lessons and it's been a blast. And so we go out every weekend and we have a mm -hmm. great time, but there are occasions where we kind of, mm, toes and sometimes it really hurts but i'm always like if, if it's my fault i'm like that was me that was me even though i'm the one crying over in the corner it was me you know? mm -hmm. <laughs> so i'll admit it if i know it <laughs> right right and that's the same in life you're gonna do screwed up things you're gonna hurt people you're gonna hurt people by mistake and you're gonna hurt people um, not to hurt them, but because you are making decisions. Um, and hopefully you don't screw things up too badly. Uh, <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> which is a whole other conversation. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.
Okay, let me let me make sure. Um, there was one question I, I saw somewhere uh, as I was going through through your bio and etc. What do you mean by emotional intelligence? Did okay. Did you already hit on that and just not call it that? No, no, that's it's a big question and. Oh, okay. Just no, no, no. Just for those who are unfamiliar with emotional intelligence, what that means, it's a concept developed in the 1990s, particularly associated with a man named Daniel Goleman, G-O-L-E-M-A-N. And um, it, it, it's, it's the idea that your cognitive intelligence, your IQ, um is normally what we think of when we think of intelligence and it's important in problem solving and decision making and so on but there's plenty of people with high iqs who don't function well in life and the reason they don't function well in life is because they have a low eq an emotional quotient hmm. and so um they're emotional they're like and, and I was one of those people for many years. I'm, I have a very high IQ, but I had a very low EQ. I was like emotionally stupid. I was like, I was in the emotional dumb role, let me tell you. And so it, it has to do with a number of factors, primarily emotional self-awareness, empathy, which is knowing how I feel, how, right, how you feel. Empathy, which is knowing how another person is feeling. Emotion management. In other words, I don't let emotions drive me into impulsive action or I'm screaming and all, right? And then finally, using emotions in social situations. Those are the four big areas, although some people divide it into five and six and whatever. But um, so emotional intelligence is really being able to know how you feel, know how somebody else feels uh, and you get get your emotions in a usable range and then use those feelings to make good decisions and solve problems and interact with people in the world hmm. so it's a, right. it's a huge field like a lot of corporations are bringing in uh, emotional intelligence experts to work with their leaders uh, and managers to get them to be able to relate better to the employees, improve productivity, and so on and so on. It became a, a big thing about 20 years ago. Hmm. Very interesting. Okay. Okay. One question before I, I want to talk a little bit about your book, because I'm just interested in the whole thing about it. Um, for somebody who maybe dealing with some things uh, that that's causing some issues. What are some signs that should alert somebody that maybe they need to get some professional help? Like mm -hmm. maybe it's beyond being able to handle yourself. Is there any kind of things you can look for? Yeah. Um, one is, there's a couple of things. One is, do you have the same problems or the same kinds of problems over and over again? It's one thing if, yeah, oh, I have this problem here, I have that problem here. But if you have the same uh, pattern that you can't break, 
um, then you need some help. Two, you live in a state of distress so that whatever's going on, you're always feeling miserable or you're sinking into a depression and you have to fight your way out or you just don't want to leave the house or um, uh, you're just kind of in emotional pain. Three, your life doesn't work. Um, you make poor financial decisions. You lose jobs. You uh, you don't have any friends. They kicked you off the bowling team, and you know it, it, they won't let you in the softball game. And four, you cause other people distress. So nobody wants to be around you because you, um, you know, they say you, you're just like too much to deal with. Uh, or they don't say it, they just vote with their feet. And so nobody really wants to be around you very much. Um, uh, time to get help. Okay. Can you kind of help relate it to a situation where, um, like, somebody says, I cannot stick with a diet because I do really well for a week. And then I, I just go off the rails and I can't control myself. And, and, and it's just, and, and I'm so depressed and, and I hate myself and, you know, all these, you know, thoughts, what does that look like based on what you just said? Like when so is that is such a problem that right. you need help? Well, that that one is more subjective. In other words, do you um, um, do you keep gaining and losing and gaining and losing like most people who go on diet? Mm -hmm. That would be useful. Um, um, if if you keep trying and fall off the wagon in a week, you need some help. And if you can't, if the emotions are so extreme that they're causing that you're in pain like the way you were describing it, mm -hmm. getting help with your feelings is a problem, is a solution. So if I could like think about somebody who goes on this diet, they have some emotions when they start the diet, right? What are the emotions when you start a diet? Excitement, enthusiasm. This time I'm really going to take off the weight and I'm going to keep it off, right? Okay. Now, on, it's a kind of a black and white thinking, but food is not black and white. Unlike alcohol and drugs, as you know, you can't give up food. So you have to eat. And you have years of eating patterns that you have a hard time changing. You can't just go from eating chocolate cake every night to eating two carrot sticks and a piece of celery. It just doesn't work. It doesn't even work to go to two carrot sticks and a hamburger. You're still like in some other. And so there's a kind of an all or nothing quality. I will be perfect on my keto diet and I will get to when I piss on that stick, boy, the thing is going to turn. Ketones. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I'm in ketosis and I'm staying that way for the next year. No. Um, so it, it's you got to move out of mythic thinking and into human being. Mythic thinking is 
I'm gonna I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna lose all this weight. I'm gonna keep it off, and I'm gonna live happily ever after. Human being is well. Look, I've tried before. It's hard. It's going to be hard this time. It's gonna be hard to sustain. I'm gonna do what I can. I'm gonna get a group or join a group. I'm gonna do the things that are gonna help me. Maybe I'll get professional help, and I'm going to put on my backpack and my shoes, and I'm gonna trudge slowly up the mountain. Uh, I don't I don't have wings. Um, and so when I have a relapse, it's not it's going to I'm going to minimize the damage and keep going as opposed to if I have wings and something happens, I crash to the ground. So those are the emotions that that you want to get help with. Perfect. OK, the last question. Uh, and I, how did you put it? Mr. Nice Guy, is that it? Uh, about your book? It, I, I want to know, number one, what do you mean when you say Mr. Nice Guy? Is is this the guy that you always hear about as being the doormat? That's the one. Okay. All right. I, I had a feeling that's probably what you meant. Talk just a little bit about your book and how that came about. I, I, mm. I am genuinely interested in that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So here's my book. Nice. And it came about because um, I was a kind of a doormat myself. Um, the, the doormats come in different varieties. You know, there's sweet little doormats with flowers on them. And then there's doormats with, let's say, you know, fuck you, but um, <laughs> go away. I was one of those. I, I had like, a, you know, because I'm kind of oppositional. There's bad boy, like, all right, so the nice guys are or, all the same in one way. They're organized around the idea of making other people happy, putting other people's needs first, and thinking and never thinking about those, never being selfish, right? And with the idea that if I put other people's needs first and make them happy, I will get everything I've ever wanted in life, especially all the love I've ever wanted, and I will live a problem-free existence. And it will all come to me without my having to ask. Well, you know how well that works, right? Um, so it, it doesn't. And I read a book called No More Mr. Nice Guy by a man by the name of Dr. Robert Glover. And he, he, he just kind of nails this syndrome. I mean, people read his book and go, was he following me around taking notes? Like, how does he know so much? And, but this is a thing. This is a thing that a lot of people suffer from, men and women. But it, we, there's an expression, people pleasing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what this is about. This, But this is the male form of it. Mm -hmm. And I went through a workshop with uh, Dr. Glover, and then he became a friend of mine. And um, uh, over time, I, what I noticed, because I started treating men who suffered from this, and they all said the same thing. We read his book. It's brilliant. It's it nailed. Like, it, it's me. It's me. It's me. But what do I do about it? And his book has some exercises, but they weren't, they're kind of not really fleshed out. So I said to him, Robert, look, you need to write a workbook for your book. And he said, I don't want to. <laughs> this is a nice guy, right? 
He now said, I said no. I'll tell you what, I'll write it with you. And he said, I don't want to. You write it. So that's how I wrote the book. So I wrote the book, and it's a combination of his ideas plus my experience working with men like this, plus um, some ideas from a book called The Hero, uh, the Hero with a Thousand Faces. So there's the idea of the hero's journey. So it helps take nice guy doormat, Mr. Nice Guy doormat, people pleasing guys, and turns them into men of kind of substance uh, who can say, yes, that's right, I, I'm doing this. This is what I want. This is how I feel. This is what I choose. This is what I'm going to do. They can look you in the eye and, and tell you the truth. Nice, I like that. So how long did it take you to write the book, just out of curiosity? About a year and a half. Oh, okay, all right, very cool. I was a romance writer, so <laughs> quite quite different. But yeah, I'm kind of one of the happily ever after kind of people. <laughs> I, I, I find tell that, that. Doesn't work, right? Doesn't work very well. Yeah, because it it. What do you do if you're supposedly happily ever after? What do you do when something bad happens? It it really yeah. kind of punctures things. So. Um, I'm the, the idea that I'm a flawed and limited person living in an irreducibly complex world. And mm. everything that can happen will happen. Good days, bad days, good things, bad things, disappointments, excitements, love, hate, anger, all, everything's going to happen. And so... If I, if I feel that, then even though I might be taken aback or, you know, kind of knocked on my ear by a particular thing, it's not like my whole world collapses because I'm not expecting my world to be one color, black or white. I'm not even expecting it to be shades of gray. I'm expecting it to be technicolor. And it is. Mm, I like that. <laughs> I like that better than shades of gray. <laughs> That's way better. Well, Michael, it has been a pleasure and thank you so much for coming on. I think a lot of your, your advice is very, very helpful. And I think my uh, followers will get a lot out of it. So thank I appreciate you. it. Amber, thank you for inviting me. And I've had a great time talking to you. It was a blast. <laughs> You're a hoot. <laughs> I'm going to be laughing. <laughs> Again, seriously, thank you so much. And hey, while y'all are here, subscribe to my channel and I will have all of Michael's information below and a link to his book if you're interested. So. Okay. Thank, okay. You. thank you. Bye, Bye Michael.